1: Thank you for watching our full exclusive interview with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I want to throw it over to CNN tonight and my friend and colleague Wolf Blitzer, who has, of course, covered Israel for decades and interviewed Netanyahu many times. Uh, Wolf, what did you think of the Prime Minister?
2: Well, I thought your interview, first of all, was terrific, uh, Jake. I thought you asked really important, uh, very, very strong questions, and you followed up. You gave him an opportunity to make his case, and he did make his case. Uh, And he also made some news, I thought, on several key issues, and I was taking notes On Ukraine, for example, he made some news on Iran. I had never heard uh, the prime minister of Israel acknowledge, confirm that Israel has already launched military action to try to destroy various Iran military weapons, uh, weapons that could be uh, given to Russia, for example, sold to Russia in its war against Ukraine. And and he made that clear that Israel was doing that uh, covertly, clearly. Uh, I thought that was significant. Uh, and you, you had a good, uh, a good discussion on U.S.-Israeli relations right now, which are going through various elements. I thought it was very significant a couple of weeks ago when the U.S. and Israel had their largest ever joint military exercises, the U.S. military's Central Command, which for many years didn't want to be involved with Israel because the Arab countries would be upset. This is the U.S. military's Middle East uh, region area. Uh, but now the U.S. military Central Command had this huge Exercise with Israel in the Mediterranean with fighter jets, aircraft carriers, all sorts of all sorts of military equipment. It was very significant because it did something that came through in your interview as well. It threw a signal to Iran. If it continues to try to develop nuclear weapons, they're gonna have to deal with not only Israel but the United States as well, which I thought was significant. But I thought you did a really great job, Jake. And I'm glad you went over to Israel to do this important interview.
1: Thanks so much. Yeah, it was interesting because he kept on talking, Netanyahu kept on talking about a credible threat, the the importance of uh, the United States and Israel posing a credible threat towards Iran in order uh, to counter uh, the existential threat uh, that he feels they pose towards Israel through uh, their nuclear weapon aspirations. Um, But the U.S. officials I've talked to uh, don't think uh, that the Iranian nuclear program Uh, that that there's a military solution to that ultimately. Uh, They they really feel um, that this needs to be taken care of through uh, diplomatic work, including economic sanctions. But but, uh, I I wasn't really, uh, I'm not sure how much they're on the same page, Biden and Netanyahu, on on that particular issue.
2: Well, Netanyahu was adamantly opposed to what... uh Former President Obama was trying to do with the Iran nuclear deal. And remember, he he came to Washington, addressed the joint session of Congress to oppose that nuclear deal. He was very, very pleased when President Trump uh, withdrew from that nuclear deal. The U.S. under the Biden administration has been trying to revive it over these past few months. That has failed. It seems to have gone nowhere right now. seems to have collapsed for all practical purposes. Uh, But Netanyahu strongly believes unless the Iranians... Uh, do, unless the Iranians don't see a credible military threat to Iran, they're going to go ahead and try to develop a nuclear bomb, which is uh, seen by Israel as an existential threat, as you correctly pointed out. So uh, this is a really sensitive issue right now for both the U.S. and Israel and has enormous implications. I'm anxious to get your thoughts as well, because at a time when the U.S., is, sees a major war between Russia and Ukraine at a time when tensions with China are escalating. The last thing the U.S. now needs is to see a major confrontation in the Middle East. And uh, I think that's, that, that became very, very clear in your interview.
1: I also wonder what you think, uh, Wolf, uh, about the fact that Netanyahu, who used to publicly call for a two-state solution uh, with the Israelis and Palestinians, Uh, now is openly saying he opposes it uh, if the state in question on the Palestinian side is one that controls its own security. I mean, he says that he does not support that. um, And and that ultimately does mean, uh, however much uh, Netanyahu tries to describe, you know, uh, some sort of semi-sovereign body in which the Palestinians control their day-to-day lives, but not their own security... Um, in terms of whether or not Israel can go in and out if they if they see a threat. Uh, that is not, you know, any definition of democracy that I've ever heard. Uh, although he you know, he seemed to be ready to make concessions um, in terms of more checkpoints and the like if there were to be some sort of peace treaty. Uh, but really no give there on just the basic idea of suffrage uh, for the Palestinian people in a fully sovereign Palestinian state. He, he, he's making no bones about that.
2: Yeah, it's making you no know bones that he opposes what's called a two-state solution. Israel living alongside a new state of Palestine. He, he, as, he, as he pointed out several times to you, he's afraid what would happen in this new state of Palestine is what has happened in Gaza, for example, where Hamas seems to be in charge, threatening Israel or Hezbollah in Lebanon when Israel withdrew from southern Lebanon. So he's, he's concerned about that. He made that point repeatedly in the interview with you. Uh, but uh, the U.S., the Biden administration, as you know, strongly supports this two-state solution. They wanna see a new state of Palestine emerge in the West Bank, uh, and uh, you know, the Israelis, at least the current Israeli government, doesn't. So that's a major source of some friction. You know, Jake, I want you to stay there for a moment. I wanna bring in Fareed Zakaria into this conversation. He's interviewed Netanyahu himself. He knows this issue really well. Fareed, thanks for joining us. This tension between Israel and the Palestinians, it's been going on for decades, as we all know. But what's different now about the attitude and approach, and, and you've covered this, of some younger Palestinians who aren't necessarily impressed by the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank or the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, and then at the, at the same time, there's this new far-right Israeli government uh, that Netanyahu and Jake talked about. Give us a sense of how serious these tensions are right now.
3: Yeah, it's a new landscape of politics, uh, as, you, as you say. On the one hand, uh, you have to understand that this is the most right-wing government in the history of Israel. And in order to become prime minister of that government, Bibi Netanyahu had to make a, a, a series of deals, one of which was to sign an agreement which basically said that all of the West Bank belongs to Israel or you know what they would call, would call historically Judea and Samaria and essentially forecloses the prospect of any Palestinian state. So what he was saying to you, Jake was something he has to say because it is now part of the governing agreement that he has. He has given himself a little wiggle room in saying the timing of the annexation, the total annexation of the West Bank uh, is up to the prime minister. But that's, you know, so there you see him balancing the needs of the coalition politics that made him prime minister. These were the allies he had to make in order to become prime minister. On the other side, you have, of course, the United States uh and ev- all other international parties the european union uh, and and others pressing him for a two state solution but as you say wolf the third dynamic here is that Palestine, young palestinians uh desperate uh, with their s- situation they have you know they have no political rights uh whatever they live fairly miserable conditions uh, are now wondering whether The answer is not a two-state solution at all, but a one-state solution. And what they would ask for was simply, we are living under Israeli sovereignty. Give us the vote. And of course, you know, there are enough Palestinians that if you were to give them the vote, Israel would be a democratic state, but it would no longer be, you know, characteristically Jewish because there would be either equal number of Palestinians or more. So the whole situation is very fraught because oh, there are all these pressures on all, the, all these sides. But one has to say, at the end of the day, uh, Bibi Netanyahu is in a very strong position. The pressure he feels uh, from the United States is one he knows how to manage. He feels no pressure from the Arabs anymore because he has managed to make peace with the moderate Arabs and found out correctly, in my view, that they actually care very little about the lives of the Palestinians. The UAE, Qatar, uh, Bahrain, even Saudi Arabia, they all played lip service to the Palestinian cause for decades. But when push came to shove and they saw an opportunity to make a peace with Israel, to enter Israel's uh, uh, economy, to do deals with Israel, they much preferred that. And they threw the Palestinians overboard. So at the end of the day, the Palestinians may, may move towards more radicalism, but I would, I would guess that Bibi Netanyahu is sitting in in the catbird seat.
2: You know, Fareed, uh, I want to also get your thoughts on uh, Jake's very important interview uh, as a whole, uh, the interview with Netanyahu. What else jumped at you specifically?
3: Well, not surprisingly, the two of you picked up on, I think, think the the part that was the most striking, which is the Iran uh, bit. Look, we are now entering a very dangerous situation with Iran. Uh, for all, I'm just going to p- put together all the things you guys were pointing out. You have a situation where the nuclear deal with Iran is now dead. Uh, it seems inconceivable that you could reenter the deal with a government that has, you know, is having these mass protests on the street. Uh, no, no Western government is going to be able to do that. What that means is Iran is in a very tough box of sanctions uh, that throttle it fairly, fairly effectively. Uh, It is also facing real uh, protests. It has responded with brutality. That brutality is fueling even greater discontent. The economy is in terrible shape. So they are trying to figure out how do you break out of this? And they are inching towards uh, more and more enrichment, which allows them to have the kind of uh, weapons-grade materials that could allow them to make a bomb. And Israel is watching this. And as Bibi said Bibi Netanyahu said to Jake, I'm not going to let this happen. In fact, what I was struck by was he said, I've gotten into this job for three reasons. And number one is Iran. So this is his number one priority as prime minister. What that means is that the Israelis are going to take some kind of action if they see the Iranians keep inching. And the Iranians are going to keep inching forward because their backs are against the wall. They don't have an out. They don't have another option. They don't have any prospect of a deal. They're cornered. They're feeling the pressure at home domestically. So that leaves, as you put it, uh, U.S. policymakers looking at a very dangerous situation with an Iran that has militias in Iraq, militias in Syria, militias in Lebanon, a a program that could become a nuclear weapons program, and an Israel determined to stop that. Uh, It feels to me like a pretty combustible mix.
2: Yeah, it's a really dangerous situation right now by all accounts. And I've spoken with intelligence officials, not only from the U.S., but from Israel, from several Arab countries. And uh, this is a real worrisome development. And one of the reasons several of these Arab countries, like the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, have moved closer and closer to Israel, and maybe even the Saudis down the road. They haven't done it yet, but maybe the Saudis down the road is because they also fear what Iran is up to right now. And Jake, I was wondering if you wanted to weigh in on that.
1: Well, one of the things that's also interesting is the tension between Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, as everyone knows, uh, the, the Sunni versus Shia uh, dynamics there, and the fact that, that the only country uh, in the region that wants Iran to get a nuclear weapon less than Israel uh, is Saudi Arabia. And you have the, the beginnings of discussions uh, of the idea of normal, normalization of relations between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia as a continued push on the Abraham uh, Accords uh, I think it's probably likely that other countries will come on board officially before Saudi Arabia uh, you know perhaps Sudan perhaps some of the, the southeastern Asian countries. But one of the things that's interesting is and, and Farid you noted this in, 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 in regrettably for the Palestinian people. Uh, how little uh, so many of these Gulf states actually care about them versus using them as rhetoric to denounce Israel, but at the end of the day what they do to help uh, the Palestinian people uh, in their in their misery and squalor is very little. Uh, and, and it will be interesting if that normalization uh, diplomacy starts beginning, how much, if anything, uh, the Saudis, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, will require or ask uh, the U.S. to push Netanyahu to ask for anything uh, for the Palestinians. And and one of the dynamics going on in the potential normalization of relations between the Saudis and Israel uh, is their shared opposition to Iran and to Iran getting a nuclear weapon. I, I mean, as with all things in the Middle East, there's a lot going on behind the surface and behind the scenes than we know about. and. I would be surprised if the Saudis and Israelis uh, didn't cooperate in various ways to try to sabotage the Iranian nuclear program.
3: Yeah, I, I, I yeah, tend that, to agree. That's, that's already happening. The, the real issue is for Bibi, again, is a domestic one. Don't forget, he is he's the king of this coalition politics. That's why he's the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. The question is, could he give something to Saudi Arabia on the Palestinian issue, uh, Palestinian issue rhetorically, which doesn't... Uh, alienate the right, the very extreme right-wing support he has. Remember, he has people in his coalition, many, many of them, who believe that Israel should annex all this territory. There should be, Palestinians should either be expelled or should live forever as second class uh, citizens. So he's, and he, and those are the people keeping him alive as prime minister. So that's uh, probably the real pressure he feels more even than the United States.
2: You know, it's interesting because a couple of months yeah, ago, thing- I, I went to Saudi Arabia with President Biden when he was there. He went from Israel directly to Saudi Arabia. I interviewed Adel El-Jabir, the former Saudi ambassador here in Washington. There's an old friend of mine who is now the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. And he made it clear that, yes, the Saudis are ready to establish some sort of direct public relationship with Israel. But... He said, there's got to be some advancement, some movement on the Palestinian issue. Otherwise, the Saudis can't do it. And he, he was very blunt in talking about that. And I thought that was significant. You know, it's uh, it's these are critical moments right now. And the stakes, and I just want, Jake, you, you to weigh on this. The stakes for the U.S. right now, what's happening over there between Israel and the Saudis and, and the Iranians and what's going on in the region, the stakes are really, really enormous because, God forbid, this thing could escalate.
1: Well, I mean, we've already seen the loss of uh, 17 lives uh, in recent days. There was that raid against the Palestinians in Jenin in the West Bank by the Israeli Defense Forces. Uh, Netanyahu acknowledged that that one uh, of the 10 uh, Palestinians killed uh, was a civilian, a a woman. Uh, And then uh, also, obviously, the seven uh, innocent Israelis killed outside a synagogue on Friday night on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And these things, as everyone knows, uh, tend to spiral out. There was a 13- year- old Palestinian boy who knew somebody who had been shot, and he started uh, lashing out. Obviously, um, violence begets violence, and, and uh, the, the region is, you know the region is very, very tense right now. Uh, and, you know, Netanyahu's Security Council, when they met Saturday, they talked about a number of steps that I think uh, a lot of people in the Biden administration did not think would be uh, bringing down the temperature, uh, strengthening the settlements, uh, enhancing the punishments against the family members uh, of uh, Palestinian uh, terrorists or those that the Israeli government um, considers uh, terrorists. Uh, There's also a a provision to make it easier for Israelis uh, to get guns for uh, their own uh, personal uh, self-defense. A lot of issues that I think the Biden administration uh, has questioned as to whether or not they, those measures, those steps, uh, will lower the temperature.
2: Yeah, good point. Yeah, Jake, thank you so, so much for going over there, doing this important, very significant interview with the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. And Farid, thanks so much for joining us. We always uh, get a little bit smarter listening to you. Uh, right now, I want to hear from uh, our reporters who are in the region covering all these important and dramatic developments. I want to start with CNN International Diplomatic Editor Nick Robertson. Nick, you're there. You were in Ramallah earlier today when the Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken met with the uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. You've been speaking with Palestinian politicians and with everyday people in the region. What's the mood on the ground there right now?
4: yeah i think very low expectations that secretary blinken could deliver anything um, i think a little bit of hope if you will that some of what he said particularly the uh, the idea that the two state solution should be kept alive frankly though most people on the streets there don't believe in it but it is something that they can hold on to that they have international legitimacy in their position, uh, the potential to have a state. They hold on to that. But I think they see the difference uh, of position between the United States and Israel. Um, they see that Prime Minister Netanyahu wants these sweeping security controls uh, over the West Bank. Uh, that undermines the legitimacy of President Mahmoud Abbas who, frankly, most people we talk to on the street uh, say he needs replacing. Part of the problem is it is Islamic. Jihad and Hamas, who have sort of gone quiet in Gaza, but have been ramping up their uh, their activities in the West Bank to draw in Israeli forces uh, to essentially show to the Palestinian people that Abbas can't uh, provide them security, which all, all helps undermine Abbas. That's their agenda there, uh, undermining the Palestinian Authority leader. But I think where the Palestinian officials see daylight between the United States and Israel, um, is in this issue of the Abraham Accords of Israel's uh, relationship, improving relationship with Arab states in the region. Prime Minister Netanyahu said that he sees a way to a workable solution with the Palestinians by expanding that circle of peace, as he called it, and, and implicit in that, I think, is Saudi Arabia. Um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, look, um, that is no substitute, expanding that circle is no substitute for direct relations with the Palestinians. So uh, clearly they see that daylight uh, between the United States and Israel. But I think when it does come to what uh, the Palestinians think of the Gulf leaders, uh, they see them as leaders that have sided with Israel, but not representative of the people. One of the interesting things I found, uh, several people, Palestinians today, said, look, look at what happened at the World Cup. Um, The people, the supporters, the Arabs, um, didn't want to mix with the Israeli supporters. And I think just one other point to make here, um, I do have regular conversations with, with Saudi diplomats. The Saudis are not ready yet, they say, to make a deal with Prime Minister Netanyahu because they don't feel he can deliver on what they want. They don't think, he said to Jake today, he has two hands on the steering wheel, he's sort of controlling the levers of the government, the, the hard, the far right uh, within, his, within his governing coalition. But the sense in Saudi Arabia is their position as uh, and the king's position as custodian of the two holy mosques, a, a, an important uh, a position within Islam, is, is a very uh, high price to give up, a high thing to give up if they cannot get what they want uh, from a, an Israeli leader in terms of reaching Palestinian aspirations. Yes, the leadership has moved on and see the Palestinian issue is a problem that they want to get beyond regionally, but uh, there is a remembrance by these leaders. They are autocracies, they're not democracies, and there still is a feeling on the streets of these countries, that witnessed, the, uh, witnessed at the World Cup, that their streets are not aligned with the leadership and there is a popular support still yet for the Palestinians.
2: Yeah, you make excellent points, Dick. Thank you very, very much. I want to bring in our Jerusalem correspondent, Hadass Gold, right now. Hadass, how do you expect the Israeli people to react to the to Jake's important interview that we all just watched?
5: Yeah, Wolf, well, well, it's in the 5 a.m. hour here, so I think for many Israelis, they'll be watching this as they wake up. And in terms of the initial reaction we're seeing from some of the Israeli press, what's interesting is they've actually been zeroing in on uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's comments in regards to Ukraine and Russia, talking about how uh, he was asked to potentially be a negotiator, that he might get involved, because that's been a really big question, is how Benjamin Netanyahu will approach the question of Ukraine. Before he became prime minister, he said he would look into the multiple requests we've heard from the Ukrainian leader about sending arms to Ukraine, about getting more involved, because Israel has been walking this very tight sort of diplomatic rope line between Russia and Ukraine. Benjamin Netanyahu, in the interview with Jake, Talking about Russia's involvement in Syria, their presence there, and how Israel needs to be, be able to essentially have communication with them in order to be able to have freedom of action against Iran backed targets there. And so there's a lot of questions about will he change the Israeli approach? Uh, a lot of pressure on Israel to be more forcefully behind uh, the Ukrainians. I thought it was interesting he talked about the transfer of arms that the Americans did, bringing them from uh, where they're stored in Israel, they are American arms, but stored in Israel, to Ukraine, saying that they had no problem with that. That so far has been the top thing. But I think the other thing that will be interesting for the Israeli audience is going to be the domestic issues. He talked about how some of his ministers, oh, they might have been more extreme before, but now they've moderated themselves. I think if you look at some of the statements from some of his ministers recently, for example, calling for the death penalty for people accused of terrorism, death penalty was last used here against Adolf Eichmann, I think they would say, I don't know how much they've moderated their position since coming into government. Wolf?
2: Yeah, important points indeed. Uh, And uh, you're right Uh, on the Ukraine issue. uh, The Ukrainians have made it abundantly clear they want Israel to help uh, provide more military equipment. They would love Israel to help with the so-called Iron Dome, which has protected Israeli cities from rockets and missiles coming in from Gaza or from Lebanon. The Israelis so far have refused to do that, even as the U.S. has provided the Patriot air defense missile system into Ukraine. So let's see if that changes anytime soon. Hadass, uh, thanks very much for joining us on this important, important night. Uh, CNN Tonight will continue next with Laura Coates and major new developments on the killing of Tyreen Nichols. More videos in the case are expected to be, to be released. What will they reveal? Stay with us.
6: Welcome back, everyone, to CNN Tonight. I'm Laura Coates. Vice President Kamala Harris will attend Tyree Nichols' funeral tomorrow in Memphis, along with other senior Biden administration officials. And as his family prepares to say a final goodbye, there are new developments we're learning about this evening. Personnel records showing that several of the former officers who are now charged in connection with his death had been cited for minor departmental violations. We're also learning tonight that the initial police report filed after the violent encounter contains details that are just, let's just say, contradicted by the video of the deadly beating we've all seen. And the city of Memphis saying tonight that more videos will be released. In this case, I want to bring in CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams, a former federal prosecutor, senior political analyst Kirsten Powers, and also retired LA police sergeant Cheryl Dorsey. I to begin with you out there, Sergeant Dorsey. We we heard the family tonight giving a press conference ahead of tomorrow's funeral. I want you to listen in to what his stepfather had to say.
7: Keep fighting for justice for our son and my family protect my wife because she's very fragile right now. Mm -hmm. We need that for her. Trust me. And I need it too. That's right. So, like I said, it's going to be short tonight because we got a long fight ahead of us. That's right. And we got to stay strong for it. So, justice for Tyree. 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 Justice for Tyree.
6: We've been struck, Sergeant Dorsey, time and time again about the um, unbelievable grace that has been shown by this family, particularly after the video has been released and before, but also in learning tonight that these personnel files did contain several different types of reprimands. Can you speak to what this reflects in your mind?
8: Uh, that, that these officers uh, misbehave on a regular basis and we have heard, and now this is corroborating evidence that folks have come in and complained about uh, these officers, and and it fell on a deaf ear. And that's why I've said that the police chief is complicit. She can't be trusted. She's got to go. She coddled, she mitigated, and as far as I'm concerned, she mitigated and uh, minimized their behavior by allowing them the pleasure of serving on a special unit like the Scorpions. That's generally reserved for Tenured officers, seasoned officers, and to have them out there willy-nilly knowing that they are miscreants is abominable. Well,
6: everyone saw on the screen there, Kirsten, I want to turn to you on the types of reprimands we're speaking about, failure to document role and detention beyond, um, and there haven't been the charges. But to the point of the idea, and there are minor violations, I would note, and we saw suspensions without pay, a written reprimand, um, failing to fill out a required form after using physical force, for example, not to the extent that we've obviously seen in this horrific video. Having said that, to her larger point, um, Sergeant Dorsey made, what do you make of the idea of um, firing a chief or reprimanding here and there, some would call them Band-Aids, to a system that has systemic Problems. Yeah. I mean, I think that
9: they—they are—they are, they are band aids. They're not going to solve the bigger problem. That doesn't mean it should—they shouldn't be done, right? So I think you do deal with what you have right in front of you, but how many times are we going to sit here and talk about these kinds of things? How many families are going to lose their son or their brother or their husband in these absolutely heinous and other daughters or their daughters, they are their daughters in utterly, in absolutely preventable situations. And, and it's, and, and it's not even remotely shocking as you sit there and read that these people had been in trouble before involving, you know, force against other people. This happens over and over again because it's a systemic problem. It's not a problem in one city and not a another city. It's a problem across the country and and I personally don't think that this system can be saved. I think that is a system that needs to be replaced, and so the policing system. I think the policing system needs to be replaced, and so that doesn't mean that like you just get rid of it tomorrow. But there should be some acknowledgement. I think we all need to kind of come together and acknowledge like this isn't working. You know, this is this is not normal, and we can't go on like this. And so we need, and, and I, do, and we have had police reform as long as I've been alive, and it's not making any difference. We've spent millions of dollars on policing. Reform. The problem is this system is rotten and it's a culture that protects other people that, 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 you know, that allows this kind of stuff to go on. I I just shudder to think of how many people have Mm -hmm. lost loved ones and think they died in a car crash and actually were killed by
6: the police. Well, that's an Uh, important point on that, Kirsten, in particular, to the idea and that we can quibble about. And I know people will have a, um, a, a retort to the idea of, Changing policing, the idea of building the plane while you're flying in the plane, knowing that there is still a need for law enforcement more well, they can broadly, be done side by side. and there and there can be parallel solutions, ab- yeah. absolutely. But the point of what we've been hearing before, I could, for no, example, so. when you talk about and she mentioned a car crash. I mean, the police report in this case um, did not mention the officers punching and kicking Tyree Nichols. Um, it's not clear who wrote the report. We should say right now, but when Don Lemon spoke to Tyree's mother. She said the police told her that her son had been arrested for a DUI. They described him as having superhuman energy. They don't reflect at all what we're actually seeing in the video. And we've seen this before the idea of what's been said and then what is revealed. Yeah. What's your reaction? Look,
10: history, Laura, is written by the victors, right? And the first person to get to. Right. The narrative gets to shift it. Let's go back to George here Floyd. Here is the
6: police. Uh, sorry.
10: Here is the police. Oh, let's go back to George Floyd and Derek Chauvin. And uh, the first press release or the first statement out of the police department in, in Minneapolis was man dies after medical incident during police interaction. Now, yeah. that is a truthful statement but it also omits the fact that the police interaction involved nine minutes of a man murdering another man by putting his knee on his neck, right? It's, you know, it's it's factual information, but there's sort of a major detail left out of it. And the problem here is sort of mitigated or fixed a little bit by these body cameras. Now, I'm not saying body cameras, and we talked about this the other night, they're a blessing and a curse, right? They they prove and disprove some things, but at least you have a real-time narrative of what happened and having a push to make this material available to the public corrects some of these this misinformation. You see, you see it in this case, you saw it in George Floyd, and you'll keep seeing it uh, and, unless there is a...
6: And by the no way, idea. we're going to keep seeing videos because there's going to be more videos released we're hearing in the days to come. We have not seen everything. And frankly, that was one of the comments that the DA, Stephen Mulroy, spoke about. about. This was not going to be the totality of all of the case. But the larger conversation of Sergeant Dorsey and Kirsten and Elliot, really about... Um, a lack of trust and what do you do with that going forward everyone listen on the eve of tyree nichols funeral you heard his family speaking out tonight at the site of one of dr king's most famous speeches albeit his final one in memphis what does this case mean for america more broadly the continuing struggle for justice and to paraphrase the reverend do we have a long way to go The family of Tyree Nichols speaking out tonight from the historic Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee, the very church where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I've been to the mountaintop speech the night before he was assassinated. Joining me now to discuss, Ibram X. Kendi, director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and co-author of the brand new book, How to Be a Young anti-racist. Ibram, I'm so glad that you're here joining me today. Thank you. And I want to take note of the location first we're talking about. I mean, this is the very place where he famously was prescient, eerily prescient about wanting to live a long life, knowing that he would not or may not get there, but had seen the mountaintop and had optimism. And I wonder, from your perspective, the idea of this significance in Memphis that was the location. What comes to mind for you?
8: Well, what comes to mind to me is indeed his his everlasting, Dr. King's everlasting optimism. And the fact that he ends that speech saying that he has been up to the mountaintop and he's looked over and he's seen the promised land. And he may not get there with you, but but he believed that we as a people We'll, we'll get to the promised land, and, and, and it's that type of radical optimism that we need right now, because I think particularly after the murder of, of, of Tyree Nichols, many people uh, are deeply cynical uh, that we can create that, that type of promised land.
6: You know, looking over that proverbial mountaintop together, one of the things that you see across the vista, frankly, is the conversations surrounding how this is being described and talked about. And you've had many who look at this and say, okay, well, oh, there's a different conversation happening now that it involves black officers. than white officers. There is a, an element of racism that is missing from the talking points people are talking and describing. But I wonder from your perspective, and um, as well-versed as you are, and so steeped into the psychology of race and its impact, what does it mean to have had five black officers in the position of power as officers to victimize a black man? Does that mean that race is not a factor?
8: It doesn't mean that, that race was not a factor, and, and the reason being is because we determine whether race is a factor less based on the perpetrator and, and more based on the victim. So the question isn't whether the officers uh, were white uh, or not black, The the question is would those black officers have brutalized and ultimately killed uh, someone who, who was white? And I think many people believe that if. If, if, if Tyree was white, then, then he would be living right now.
6: I mean, just the idea, we talked about a lot in the past, there's conversations where the race of a victim, the race of the defendant in actions, very, very instructive, for lack of a better term, to jurors and the way people view different instances. But w- the idea that it is of the same race, it's really a discussion about power. And when people talk about Racism. They talk about race and the impact of bigotry. It comes down fundamentally to be reductive to the abuse of power. And when children, my children have asked the question to me of why did this happen? Why did they do X, Y, Z? Often my response is because they could. It's not satisfying, but it is the truth about power and its abuse.
8: It is. and, And I think at its core, when we're talking about race and racism, we need to understand that at its core, this is indeed about power. You know, we've talked a lot about ignorance, we talk a lot about hate, we talk a lot about miseducation, and all of that is relevant, but, but nothing is more relevant than, than indeed power. And these black officers, like other officers who, who are not black, oftentimes have the power to, to harm and brutalize uh, black people and get away with it. And, and that's one of the reasons why they consistently do it.
6: When you're talking about course correction, when it comes down to power, how do you get the powers that be or speak truth to the powerful to change it?
8: Well, I think that the unfortunate truth is is many people who are in positions of of power who could radically change this are quite concerned about this common belief that the source of, of violence is particular groups of people, is bad people. And that the way in which you corral or create safety, uh, you know, is by having police and, 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 and cages and, 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 and that idea that, the, that they're bad black people, that black neighborhoods are dangerous because there's black people there empowers officers uh, to brutalize black people and, and claim they feared for their lives. Real
6: quick, I know your new book is talking about the idea how to be a young anti-racist. I wonder, thinking about from the perspective of, of children and our young people who are watching and, um, and wondering at what point we will go from never again to once again, back to never again, what are you thinking for our young people and what they can be learning?
8: Well, I'm thinking first that, that indeed, as you stated, Laura, that our young people are watching. They have questions, too. Uh, as you stated earlier about what what happened to to Diary and, and and why. And more importantly, they have questions of about what they can do about it, how they can be different, how they can create a different type of society. And so when Nick Stone and I were were putting together how to be a young anti racist, we wanted to provide young people with that guidepost so they can be part of transforming this country.
6: So important to think about that transformation and to you know in a way all of us are the youth that are watching and wondering what this young experiment of a country could really be. Ibram Kendi, thank you so much today.
8: Thank you for having me.
6: Well, my home state of Minnesota and its governor is signing a bill, and in fact did sign a bill into law that protects abortion access. The question many are asking across this country of ours is, is this the blueprint for other states? Governor of Minnesota Tim Walls, joins me next. Well, today, Minnesota Governor Tim Walz from my home state signing a bill that will codify the right to an abortion into law. The bill, known as the Protect Reproductive Options Act, also known as the PRO Act, will also protect the right to reproductive care in the state. Minnesota Governor Tim Walls joins me now. Governor, thank you for taking the time to join me this evening. I mean, this is a really impactful m- moment, and it's one of the first in the nation to do so. Um, talk to me a little bit, though, about the reasons why. Because as we know, in the Minnesota Supreme Court, they had decided that abortion rights are, in fact, protected way back in 1995. Tell me why it was important to sign this legislation into law now.
11: Yeah. Well, Laura, thanks for having me. Well, first of all, the new reality of June 24th last year when the Supreme Court, we also thought Roe was was law of the land. And we were told in Senate confirmation hearings by potential Supreme Court justice, that was true. It proved not to be. And I'm just incredibly proud. I think the words I heard today was proud and relieved that, uh, that women, that young people, that allies across uh, Minnesota since that day in June said never again that we are going to uh, make bodily autonomy and the decisions that women make their decision to make and this piece of legislation today makes sure that the only person making that decision is the individual involved and that they do so in that that medical consultation room with a medical provider and then they make the decision. Being very clear, this is very simple, very uh, right to the point that we trust women in Minnesota and that's not what came out of the Dobbs decision. So I think it's critically important that we build a firewall. We have a Supreme Court that ruled correctly that way. That might not always be the case. So we need to make sure um, that we're pushing back, that we're on offense on this understanding because the vast majority of Americans agree with this positions, but in my uh, part of the country, states around us very quickly um, made abortion uh, difficult to get, made it, uh, criminalized it, um, mm. and forced women to make really bad decisions, not in Minnesota.
6: There are a number of states that are, in neighboring states, that actually have abortion as illegal right now based on trigger laws and, and discussions post-Roe v. Wade. Um, I'm wondering about the process for legislation because it was not without opponents. For example, opponents have been calling this extreme, saying the law provides no protections for the unborn child. You had Republicans who were proposing some amendments, including prohibitions on third trimester abortions. They did not, you know, they were not part of the final legislative initiative. Talk to me about the why.
11: Well, those things don't happen, and when they do, they're incredibly rare, and it's the life of the mother. They know that. Um, speaking of extreme, these are the people, and I ran a, a gubernatorial campaign last year very clear. My opponents said that they would ban abortion, and they would make sure there were no exceptions for rape or incest. That's who these people are. So now, where we have the ability to have a majority, we have, for the first time in Minnesota history, two women running the State house of Speaker Hortman and Leader Dietzik in the Senate, who said no we're going to do this, this isn't debatable. There aren't exceptions in here that these are decisions that are made on basic healthcare decisions that are made, basic reproductive, basic healthcare for women to be made by them and their healthcare provider and bringing up scenarios that do not happen and that certainly aren't going to be fixed by men, um, Republican men who think that they're going to make those decisions. So um, yeah, there's going to be opponents to this. They're the ones that are trying to criminalize women's healthcare decisions. They're the ones that are trying to put women at risk. They're the ones that are trying to make providers be in a position where they can't give the best scientific advice. So in Minnesota, we're simply not doing it. And if that's the choice that they're going to continue to make, um, I, I think they're going to continue to lose across the country because people know this is the right decision.
6: Will this, do you think, become a blueprint in perhaps two ways? One, a blueprint for other states to follow in your lead, and the other, the idea of a blueprint for a potential challenge, not with the Minnesota state Supreme Court, but making its way back up to challenge and test what the Dobbs decision really stands for?
11: Well, I would certainly hope so. I'm not certainly hopeful about this Supreme Court, but I think, you know, the the fundamental belief that individuals have sovereignty over their own bodies to make these decisions um, is that one is the vast majority of people agree with that. I do think it's the blueprint. And I think whether it's on voting rights, reproductive rights, or some of these things, um, we can't set back and let people who are willing to deny elections, who are willing to deny women access to health care, believe that their positions aren't the extreme position. So I think the blueprint here is, is to do the right thing, lean into these issues and, and make sure that we're protecting people. And I'm absolutely convinced good politics will follow good policy and making the right decisions. So um, as states uh, moved in the wrong direction all around us, we think this is a beacon. People are going to want to move to states where they're respected. Good luck trying to hire people where women are not respected, where LGBTQ people are demonized, where our trans youth are scapegoated and put at risk. That's not going to happen here. And I think the blueprint is is to just simply say that, codify it, and show that life can be, um, everyone can thrive. And that's what we want to do here in Minnesota.
6: Well, I was homesick tonight, but now I'm glad to talk to the governor. Thank you so much, (laughs) Governor Tim Walz. Nice to see you.
11: Nice to see you, Lord.
6: Well, listen, there's also more on the idea of politics. I mean, it's the newly released video showing former President Trump taking the fifth in a deposition with New York's attorney general and did it more than 400 times.
12: Anyone in my position... Not taking the Fifth Amendment would be a fool, an absolute fool.
6: Well, tonight we've got some newly released video from the August deposition of the former President Donald Trump as part of the New York Attorney General's civil investigation into fraudulent practices at the Trump Organization. Trump taking the Fifth more than 400 times in his deposition, saying in the released video that well, he'd be a fool not to take the Fifth.
12: Anyone in my position not taking the Fifth Amendment would be a fool, an absolute fool. One statement or answer that is ever so slightly off, just ever so slightly, by accident, by mistake, such as it was a sunny a beautiful day when actually it was slightly overcast, would be met by law enforcement.
6: But this is frankly just one piece of the broader investigation surrounding Trump as he's trying to jumpstart his 2024 campaign. I want to bring in CNN political commentators Charlie Dent and Ashley Allison. Back with us also is CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams. I want to begin with you on that point, though, because the idea of Trump saying he'd be a fool not to take the fifth, which, of course, is a change in tune. We can all remember the mm-hmm. moments he's talking about um, what it means to take the fifth. But I do wonder, um, in this position, is he
10: right about this? Uh, you know, it was a yes and no, right? Um, you'd be a fool not to take the fifth because if you think you might face criminal uh, liability at some point, then, yeah, you got to plead the fifth. It's your right as a citizen. The problem is, these are civil cases often, and it can be used against you in a civil case if you if you plead the fifth. Um, You can then, you know, the opponents can go into court and say that, well, look, he's pled the fifth. He must have something to hide. So it cuts both ways. The other thing is that there's this other case among many going on right now with the state attorney general in New York Mm -hmm. where he wouldn't even admit to basic facts like does the Trump organization exist? And they're seeking to have him held in contempt of court over that. It's it's a way of gaming the system and not actually participating fairly in it. Um, so yeah, maybe he has a right to plead the fifth. He certainly does as a citizen, but you know, it's another tactic. Like I mean, the else.
6: tactics, I mean, just politically speaking, one of the things he has been, um, you know, people sp- talk often about Trump is his ability to use and capitalize on tactics that have been successful in some part politically. And then, of course, unsuccessful given the fact that he is not the president of the United States, although he'd like to be. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, we're learning from CNN as well, that he is struggling to fundraise in the first weeks of his campaign. I want to put up this full screen because he's pulling in less less in the six weeks after his November announcement than in the six weeks prior to his announcement Charlie what does that say to you
13: well his campaign went dormant after he announced and uh, and frankly we all recognize that he's been a diminishing figure and and he has been blamed rightly uh, for Republican underperformance in the midterms and in numerous states his interventions in those primaries made enemies not to, He already had enemies with, among the Democrats and the independents, but among Republicans. He infuriated people in a state like Pennsylvania. A lot of Republican leaders are incensed that he got involved and helped Doug Mastriano become the nominee, and then the wipeout occurred. So he's, made, he's picked up a lot more barnacles. You know, he's a diminishing figure. His campaign went dormant, and people want to turn the page. They want to move forward. So I'm not surprised that his numbers are off.
6: Some would say, Ashley, that he's more so walking to the, for presidency as opposed to running for the presidency. But there is a significant handicap if you cannot fundraise or you're wondering what that means. And we know that recently he had appealed to and successfully now has been able to be a part of Meta and Facebook yet again and Instagram. And, I'm, and you are known for your, um, the coalition building and the idea of using social media, obviously and other platforms, to try to generate support and enthusiasm across different lines. How significant will this be that Trump will soon have access again to, what, 34 million followers. It's
14: dangerous, I think, to our democracy because we know that he used social media to organize an insurrection, but it will benefit his campaign. Um, We know that there are populations that are on Facebook. They are typically older Americans. Um, There's a lot of disinformation on uh, Meta now. And That's what Trump thrives off of. He thrives on being able to put spew hate, spew disinformation, confuse voters, and then do this woe is me kind of act that he'll clip and be like, I can't say one thing wrong before the media, you know, comes after me. This is exactly the playbook that he wants to play. I agree with you, um, Charlie, that I think his campaign is dwindling. I still will not count him out um mm-hmm. until every you know we find out who's going to run on the democratic side but him being on meta is dangerous it will give him some wind and if he takes the opportunity to be on and on twitter when the really the competition gets tough i think that it will could benefit him, but also expose him yet again to the type of person he is. You know,
6: you think about if his concerns about pleading the fifth and one bad statement, and he used the example of overcast skies versus sunny skies and getting Mm -hmm. this wrong. And I certainly appreciate the idea of having been a civil litigator as well. The idea of deposition testimony, you better be precise. Um, Otherwise, it can be used against you. But then you've got the wild, wild west of the Twitter or Facebook thumbs, right? And the idea that those two could be used. is It's also dangerous for him, with all the different investigations looming, for him to use the platforms recklessly. Sure. It's it's
10: evidence, right? It's statements being made by a party, and you can use them in court. And if he contradicts something he said, you know, as he did today in a deposition, uh, certainly can be used against him. I, I think the challenge, and this is where the political and the legal sort of come together, you know, I don't know if any of this actually hurts the former president with his supporters, right? Where so much of his brand has been built on grievance mm. and grievance at the behest of the legal system that perhaps... Um, being targeted by these lawsuits and prosecutions and investigations actually whips people up. You know, maybe it's like Charlie is saying, a, a dwindling proportion of the Republican electorate. But still, a lot of people um, still, you know, he touches something in them. Uh,
6: yeah, and and, it and to, to, yeah, and to that point you've raised, I mean, about the dwindling, Charlie, just to uh, build on that point, the campaign may be dwindling, but you're not actually hearing from Republican incumbents right. who are vociferous about wanting that to go him to go away.
13: Well, well, I, I like to say that he's a diminishing figure, but he's still a dangerous one. He still commands uh, a, enough support to, to cause problems. And, and you're seeing, too, that a lot of these other uh, likely candidates for president on the Republican side, whether they be uh, Chris Christie, Pompeo, Nikki Haley, Pence, nobody wants to be the first to jump into that pool with Donald Trump. I mean, because they'll become his target. And so I think they're all waiting around, even though they recognize his vulnerability. So there's kind of this conundrum. You only need one, maybe two candidates to challenge him. There can't be too many, because if there are too many candidates out there, mm-hmm. that, will, that will split the anti-Trump vote too many ways, and he can walk away with a plurality of the... But are they
6: waiting for Trump, or are they waiting to see the Democratic? Nominee. I think it's both. I think that, you know,
14: folks are waiting to see the state of the union is next week. They're waiting to see what President Biden says, what he if he declares or not. I think if whether or not President Biden runs in or not, I think there will be more Republicans that jump into the field. But I think they are just trying to hedge their bets because Once Joe Biden announces, they can say, I can be the person, Trump already lost to him, I can be the person that might be able to beat him. Will they be correct? I'm not sure. One other thing I just want to say is the interesting thing about this deposition is I feel like this is the most control we might have ever seen Donald Trump be in just saying one line over and over. But when he really gets on Twitter, he he just can't control himself. He won't have his attorneys around him. And that's where he'll start to say those contradictory statements that will get him in well, trouble. He can lie on
13: he can lie on Twitter and he can lie to the media, but lying in a deposition is another matter. He got good legal advice, I think, to take the Fifth Amendment. He's a terrible witness.
6: Well, I mean, look. And just so we're clear, you know, he has been invited back to Twitter, but he's still on Truth Social, Facebook, and Instagram. Maybe other fundraising opportunities to what he would like to do next. But we're all really waiting to see what impact. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, the the idea of who takes the fifth. Remember, the mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you mm-hmm. taking the Fifth Amendment? Uh-huh. All those different aspects it of it. Fits. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how that will be compartmentalized away now that there's conversations around ongoing witch hunts, so to speak. Stick around, everyone, because next, the latest chapters in what seems to be the never-ending saga of one George Santos. He says that he is stepping back from his committee assignments until his issues are resolved. So which issues does he mean exactly? The issues about the lying on his resume or any other aspect of it? Maybe volleyball this time? What is it? embattled Republican Congressman George Santos is speaking out after deciding to step aside from his committee assignments, at least until the investigations into his lies are resolved. Here's what he said to right-wing network OAN earlier today.
13: I've learned my lesson and you can guarantee, I can guarantee you that from now on, anything and everything is always going to be above board. It's Largely always been above board. I'm just going to go the extra step now to double-check, cross-reference everything.
6: I know you're thinking, double-check and cross-reference your own stories? Okay, well, he was asked about the issues with his campaign finances or animal charity, or he wasn't asked about the many lies he told about his employment and religion and family history and even his mother's location on September 11th. But he did say this.
13: I've made my sincere apology multiple times. I, I earlier said it, that I thoroughly apologize for lying about my education and embellishing the resume. I've made that very, very clear. Uh, I, I don't know what more can can be said other than admitting. Is there anything more humbling and humiliating than admitting that on national television, Caitlin?
6: Charlie Den, Ashley <laughs> Allison, and Elliot Williams are all back. Well, let's answer his question. Is there anything more that he could have done or do now that he has admitted to the lying former Congressman Charlie Dent? Yeah, he could do more. He could resign.
13: I mean, that would be the easiest thing to do. But, you know, look, lying about your resume, your schooling, working at Goldman Sachs, the Holocaust, 9-11. I mean, that's not a crime. But his bigger problem, though, of course, is this $700,000 campaign loan. Yeah. He's got FEC problems and probably DOJ problems. He's got problems all over the place, legally and certainly ethically. So I think that's a big story, issue.
6: what's the real story, though? I mean, you've been behind the scenes. Yeah. What's the real story that he has been assigned to committee assignments and now is saying, you know what, I think I'll go ahead and step oh, yeah. back? What what really what happened? What really happened is,
13: I suspect, he was guaranteed committees. They needed a speaker vote. OK, now now leadership, Republican leadership, wants to kick Ilhan Omar off of her committees but it's hard to kick her off the committees or uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee when you have Santos on two committees with all his baggage so I'm sure he didn't voluntarily jump off those committees I'm sure he had a meeting with the speaker said we need you to get off the committees and he then said I'm stepping down so, so that's the, that's I think the backstory that's you, what it looks like to me
10: no question right and, and that's the sort of behind the scenes horse trading but in practice what you have now is a member of Congress who's recused from serving our committees. That's basically like a McDonald's employee who's recused from touching Big Macs. It's literally a core function of the job that he's not doing on behalf of the people. And frankly, so set aside whether he resigns or not the people of the 3rd District, Congressional District of New York, just ought to ask, do I really want this clown show uh, representing me in Congress? It's, it's just, He's just not serving the people. Well, and, on that uh,
6: point, that's an important one, the idea of um, you know what happens when you're not on a committee. Remember Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, Paul Gosar, to name a few. There was the same notions of, well, hold on a second. They're not going to be on committees. What are they really going to be doing at that point in time? But you mentioned the people, and Congressman Elise Stefanik talked about this earlier today. Listen to what the fourth-ranking House Republican had to say, because she goes back and talk about, look, this is about the process and the people.
9: Like all of my colleagues, uh, particularly in New York State, uh, I supported George Santos as the nominee, and the people of his district voted to elect him. Now, we just uh, got out of conference, and George has voluntarily removed himself uh, from committees as he goes through this process, but ultimately voters
6: decide. they resign? Do you think resign? Again, this process is going to play itself out. I mean, actually, on that point, yes, it is about the voters, but the voters did not vote for this particular person as he really is. Right. And and just on that point, I want to show everyone some of the new polling that we have out here. Um, There is a Newsday and Siena College poll. One of the questions is, should he resign? Seventy eight people in his own district. Seventy eight percent said, yeah, also, if you want to break down Republicans, Democrats, independents, you also have, what is it, 80% Democrats, 72% independents, 71% Republicans. So to the larger point Elliot was raising as well, the idea of, look, what's he really doing if he's not on committees? They're also asking, what's he doing there at all? Okay, first,
14: in his interview with OAN, he said, he lied about not lying. <laughs> he's like, everything has been a bore, a bore, up a bore, up, up, up a bore, but yeah. then it's not a board. it's like, Bruh, you're lying. Just stop, first. (laughs) Second, this is why it was so important about all these deals that were being cut during the Speaker vote. Because, to your point, maybe there was a deal that will put you on committee to become Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and now Kevin McCarthy has what he wants, and so... You can be gone because you're bringing us down and we want to do some other things with uh, Congressman uh, Omar. The final thing is that the voters did not get a fair shot to elect the person that George Santos said. If they really knew who he was and all the lies, he would not have won. But the reality is, is that in two years, that seat is going to be up again, if not sooner, if he is not forced out of office. And if his behavior sustains for these two years, I have a strong premonition that that's going to be a blue seed. And when you only have a four-vote gap right now in the House and we don't know what 2024 is going to look, a Santos could really flip your majority with four votes in that district and and surrounding districts that we know went red in 2022. They could go blue in 2024.
10: A question I have then, and this is really, I guess, a question for Charlie. Do you really think... If Republicans had a 20-seat majority right now, he'd still be in Congress. No. Right. I right. okay. answer that. Okay, no, okay. Like, the congressman. Kind of, Your no. name
6: is also Charlie right now.
10: <laughs> so, 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 I mean, okay, okay, so Congressman no. Allison. No, that's
13: what I mean. I think that no,
6: they... don't put that name. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I've been
13: involved. As I was on the ethics committee. Yeah. I, I, was invo- I was involved with members being forced to resign. It's not a pleasant task. But what usually happened is the members who would resign because they brought discredit upon themselves and their families and their districts, they could feel shame. And they would resign to protect their families and their constituents. The challenge we have here with Santos is, I'm not sure he can feel shame. And that's why he's not resigning right now, even though he should. He should get out. Now, I think the leadership does have more so, more levers they can pull to force this guy right.
10: out. But, but the thing is, they don't have to get rid of him because they need his seat. Yes. Right? And the point even right. Even
14: if the Dems were in control yes. and, and it was a slim margin, I think they would still push him out. This is literally a a play about politics. And Stefanik saying, like, let the process go. It's about the people is not. Being truthful and not being honest and it's just a, it's a policy and
6: politics and power. Play and let me right just now. say this, though, too. There is the moment you're talking about Ilhan Omar, Congressman Ilhan Omar. I mean, she is on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. This is not a permanent select committee. So McCarthy does not have the unilateral ability to just take her off. But I want to leave you all with this moment to get you kind of the things that make you go hmm for a second. <laughs> Congressman Matt Gates coming to her defense. listen. I
10: view the Schiff and Swalwell matter somewhat differently than I view the Ilhan Omar matter. The reason I think a lot of Republicans want to kick Ilhan Omar off of the foreign affairs Committee is because they don't like what she has to say. It's one thing to do dangerous things to the country with intelligence. It's quite another to say, I don't like your viewpoint, and thus I want to remove you.
6: Hmm, that's an homage to Arsenio Hall and things that make you go, hmm, about what is just happening, and try to process that. Everyone stay around. When we come back, I want to turn to the alarming spread of anti-Semitism in this country and what Benjamin Netanyahu told our own Jake Tapper about fighting it. That's next. As part of his exclusive one-on-one interview with CNN's Jake Tapper... Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talked about rising anti-Semitism and the constant battle against it.
15: What I learned from my father and what I've learned from history is that you may not be able to eradicate it if it's been around that long, but you have to be able to resist it. And to resist it, first of all, the Jewish people have to stand up proud and be strong. Non-Jews have to realize that hatred that begins with, with the Jews doesn't end there. Now, we saw that with Hitler. It just spreads and engulfs it.
6: A lot to talk about tonight with Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, thank you for being here this evening. You know, um, the Israeli Prime Minister also spoke to Jake more broadly as well, about really the roots of anti-Semitism. I think it's very important to focus on that as well to try to better understand how to eradicate it in part. Let me play for you for a moment. I want you to respond on the other side. What he had to say about the roots and present day.
15: My late father, who was a great historian, was also a historian of anti-Semitism. And I learned from him that anti-Semitism has deep roots. It actually goes back as a doctrine. Uh, Twenty-five hundred years to uh, um, Hellenistic Egypt. Actually, that's where it began. Five hundred years before Christianity, uh, and it's you know taken on shapes, changed shapes, but it basically says uh, you know it holds the Jews responsible for all the ills of the world, uh, and f- just pervades these horrible. Uh, myths about the Jewish people. They drink the blood of Jewish children, that's what they said, of uh, Christian children, that's what they said in the Middle Ages. Uh, They actually say that about Israel today.
6: I mean, Jonathan, just hearing that, why, just help us to really echo why this is so dangerous today.
16: Well, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu kind of gets it right. Anti-Semitism is often described as the oldest hatred but in today's parlance, it's really a conspiracy theory. It's a warped view of how the world works. Laura, it centers suffering on the Jewish people as the cause. And you know, for thousands of years, as the Prime Minister alluded to, Jewish people after the expulsion from their ancient homeland in the, in the area we now call Israel, Jewish people lived as a minority in majoritarian countries. They spoke a different language. They had different rituals, they had different dietary practices, different cultural customs, they were ethnically distinct, and they were a convenient scapegoat, whether for the emperor or the church or the crown or the caliphate or the Cossacks and the czar or the Third Reich. Blaming the Jews was a way that people in positions of authority could shift the blame for their own failings. And unfortunately, it's mutated over time, but it, it is persistent and remains with us today.
6: I mean, on that point, I, I have to tell you, I was, I was pretty stunned to see some of the results of the new Anti-Defamation League survey. It was released just earlier this month, and the numbers are stunning. You're talking about the historical context and where we are right now. I mean, just for part of it, the, the survey found that the percentage of Americans who believe in anti-Semitic tropes, has actually spiked in the last three years. 85% now believe in at least one anti-Jewish trope compared to 61% in 2019. Why do you think that is? What is attributed or contributes to this rise in just the last several years alone?
16: Laura, I'm glad you asked. This ADL data, which we've been doing these kinds of polling since the 1960s, so we have a lot of context and a lot of experience and indeed in a world in which our leaders are normalizing anti-Semitism, whether, you know, from the right or from the left, blaming the Jewish people or the Jewish state, they normalize tropes like globalists, you know, the idea that Jews control the banks and Wall Street and whatnot. It's become part of like the political conversation, Laura, in ways that were unimaginable a few years ago. So number one, you have politicians weaponizing anti-Semitism. Number two, extremists feel emboldened. They can make wild claims, again, about Zionists or about globalists. These are euphemisms for Jews. And literally, they're running for office on such wild charges. And then thirdly, social media is a super spreader of stereotypes. I mean, what we're seeing on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok would make your head spin. So taken together, whether it's the extreme right demonizing the Jewish people, the radical left demonizing the Jewish state, we get caught in between. And that's why, in addition to the attitudes, Laura, anti-Jewish incidents have reached an all-time high. We've been tracking that for almost 45 years. We've never seen the kind of numbers, unfortunately, we're seeing today.
6: You know, you mentioned politics. And while you were, on the, while you were talking, we were showing on the screen some of the stereotypes of people are thinking are mostly true, but I do want to play for you because Jake Tapper did ask Netanyahu if he had any concerns, speaking of social media, about Trump potentially being back in the White House in 2024. Listen to what his answer was. Okay.
15: I did uh, praise uh, President Trump because he did great things for Israel. He recognized Jerusalem as our capital. He moved the American embassy there. He recognized our sovereignty in the Golan Heights. He went out of the what I think is the dangerous... Uh, uh, nuclear deal with Iran, he um, helped me forge the four historic peace accords with the Arab states. So he's done great things. I think he made a big mistake on, the, on uh, this Kanye West uh, thing, and I said so. Uh, I'm not going to intervene in your politics. You know that. You tried. It's good that you tried to get me involved in your politics, but uh, you do your job and I'll do my job. I want to stay away from your politics. Let the people decide.
6: Well, that's a luxury that many don't have to sort of compartmentalize or distance. What do you think?
16: Well, look, I mean, I think B.B.'s smart and he's going to try to stay away from American politics. He's right about the things that Trump did for Israel, many of which were positive. I wish he'd emphasize negotiations directly to the Palestinians more, to be frank. At the same time, I think I disagree with him about a pattern of behavior we saw from the president, from Charlottes, from tweeting out anti-Jewish memes during the campaign, to Charlottesville diminishing, dismissing the alt-right marchers, to, again, what was just pointed out by this, you know, my dinner with Kanye and Nick Fuentes. I mean, kind of inexplicable. Look, Trump's complicated, Laura. He has Jewish grandchildren, and yet he's dining with neo-Nazis. It's hard to square that, but at the end of the day, what is real and what is undeniable is with the rise of anti-Semitism, we need Jews and non-Jews, all people to realize this problem, as the prime minister said in the earlier segment, isn't just a Jewish issue. It's everyone's issue, because it starts with the Jews, but it never ends with us. It's a sign of decay of democracy. We've all got to stand up against hate of all kinds.
6: We certainly do. An injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. Hear, hear. Thank you so much. Jonathan Greenblatt, nice speaking with you. Thank you. Look, what is going on at the Dallas Zoo? We're going to go there next, We're two emperor tamarind monkeys that went missing, well, they've now been recovered from a closet in an abandoned home. Of course, the big question, how in the world did they get there? It's been one mystery, frankly, after another this month at the Dallas Zoo. It seems like someone is tampering with the animals. Now, there is some good news tonight. Two emperor tamarin monkeys disappeared yesterday. Well, they have now been found. Police discovered them in an abandoned house in a Dallas suburb. They were hidden in a closet. But who put them there and why? I want to bring in CNN correspondent Rosa Flores. Also with us here is Dan Ash, president and CEO of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums who's the former director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I want to begin with you here tonight, Rosa, on this. We learned a few hours ago that these two tamarind monkeys have been found. What do we know?
17: Well, according to the Dallas Police Department, they received a tip about this because they have been asking the public for help. They followed that tip and they found these two monkeys in an abandoned home inside a closet there was nobody inside that house so no one was arrested but Laura the police did release surveillance video and a photo of an individual that they're not calling a suspect they're not calling this individual a person of interest but they do say that they're interested in speaking to this person in relation to the disappearance of these monkeys now that individual is wearing a beanie uh, a hoodie they're eating chips unclear why that was happening when this photo was taken but again these two monkeys went missing yesterday and now Laura we know that they don't didn't just disappear they were apparently abducted because they were
6: recovered today by police. What is the Dallas Zoo and law enforcement talking about and offering today as any potential leads or explanations?
17: You know, Laura, they're taking this very seriously. The police is conducting a criminal investigation. They say that they're very serious about this. They're trying to figure out what all this suspicious activity is. Now, they're not going into the potential charges, but they do say, I mean, this could include animal cruelty. And then when you think about the animals that are that are being tampered with, or in the case of the vulture, the vulture has died, some of these animals are vulnerable animals in the case of the leopard. There's only about 10,000 of those in Southeast Asia. The vulture is an endangered species. That vulture was killed. The zoo says that uh, the cause and manner of death are trying to figure that out. But they do say that this is uh, the, the death of the vulture was not by natural causes. So they're investigating. They're trying to figure out who killed this vulture. And there's mm-hmm. a $10,000 reward for the arrest and the indictment of the individual that's responsible for that. Now, another Another obvious question here is, are all of these cases related? The police sure. won't go into those details, Laura, but in the case of two, at least two of these instances, they happened on the same day. So it's difficult to separate those. Um, but again, police taking this very seriously, this is a mm-hmm. criminal investigation and it can, it continues. It's ongoing.
6: I want to bring in Dan to the conversation because these are, I mean, this is the very latest of incidents and a string of incidents, as Rosa mentioned, Dan, these two tamarind monkeys, I mean, they were found in a closet of an abandoned home. If anyone's watching the news about what's happening in Texas right now, in Dallas specifically, it's freezing there. And these are warm weather creatures, I understand. They they could have died in terms of thinking about what could have happened if they had not been found.
12: They could have. And I, I, I want to begin by expressing my admiration and appreciation for everyone at the Dallas Zoo and the Dallas Police Department for the for the dedication and the seriousness with which they have Uh, taken these matters. But yes, removing animals like tamarins from their habitat at the zoo is is very dangerous because they they do have specific climate conditions. They're receiving expert care at the zoo. So this was definitely a serious um, issue for their health and safety.
5: Do you think
6: the Dallas Zoo is, is doing enough, given the string of events at this point, to try to prevent another animal from being impacted?
12: Absolutely. I think Dallas Zoo has has acted in an exemplary manner. They brought in law enforcement right away. They knew something was wrong. And when you think about this, this is really kind of an allegory for what's happening to animals in nature uh, on a much larger scale. Humans going into their habitat, taking them out of their habitat, um, trafficking them. Um, and, uh, it, and it is wildlife trafficking and human persecution and poaching that are driving a lot of these Animals toward extinction, and so what we're seeing here is the same thing on a smaller scale. A human going into their enclosure, taking them out, uh, presumably for you know personal collection or possibly for to traffic them, and and so what we're seeing here at Dallas is the same kind of struggle that we're dealing with in conserving animals in nature, and um, I think Dallas Zoo has done an exemplary job, and um, and. Later this year, I'll be at Dallas Zoo actually taking part in a wildlife trafficking um, event to highlight the challenges associated with protecting animals, even now, as we see in spaces that are designed for their safety and protection.
6: I mean, it really, the way you phrase it, quite a microcosm of a larger issue. And I do wonder what we'll know about the motives and be able to capture their catch the person who is engaged in this behavior thank you to you both this evening thank you Laura well Alec Baldwin formally charged today over the fatal shooting on his movie set we'll tell you what will come next Alec Baldwin now formally charged today in connection with the 2021 fatal shooting on the set of the movie Rust. The Santa Fe County DA's office charging Baldwin and the set's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, with two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Now CNN has reached out to representatives for both Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed following today's official charges, but we have yet to hear back. But attorneys for both defendants previously insisted that their respective clients are innocent. Back with me, Elliot Williams. Also joining me is Prop Gun Safety founder, Dutch Merrick, and former Maryland State Police Officer, Neil Franklin. Glad to have you all here. Let me begin with you, Dutch, on this in particular. The the documents are really laying out um, a series of actions that they believe are negligent, including him not taking firearm training seriously, having a cell phone distraction moment, also about the idea of the pointing of the gun in particular. And I want to go there because certainly there is common sense that says you should never point a gun at someone. And there's obvious reasons why. I do wonder from your experience, though, we were talking about a movie set in particular, which is the crux of this issue. Are the standards notably different because of the pantomiming and the scene setting?
18: yeah they absolutely are different you know there's real world gun handling and then there's motion picture gun handling and we have a slightly different set of rules in real world they say never point the gun at another person or something you don't want to destroy in the film world we say always point it in a safe direction and a safe direction is open to interpretation we might have a gun pointed at a camera but there'll be a a sheet of lexan or polycarbonate there to safety that so it's not always not pointing at a person per se technically uh, but again, I think they're putting so much onus on the actor, he, in my experience, we're supposed to safety the stage as though the actor can, so that the actor can play fully, almost like a four-year-old, so that they can completely be in that character and in that space and not worrying about any other details. So we make it very realistic and ultimately entirely safe. So hence, blank use for over 100 years. They look like a real gun. They act like a real gun. But nothing comes out the barrel except for fire. No bullets.
6: On that point, Neil, I mean, Baldwin insists that he did not fire the revolver, that it just, quote, went off. The D.A.'s office is saying and, um, that they had FBI analysis done and found that to be um, not truthful, that the, the weapon did not somehow malfunction. What do you think?
7: So I think whether on the set of a movie or in in some other situation, you should always take gun safety very, very seriously. So even in that, as Dutch said, even though you want them in this role where they can be acting, for instance, like a four-year-old and just do what they need to do in, in, in that acting situation, when it comes to pointing a gun in a safe direction, it's still your responsibility, everyone's responsibility who handles that firearm to check, to make sure that it is either loaded or unloaded, or whether it has blanks or it doesn't have blanks, um, and to have someone else check with you at the same time. You just don't check yourself. You check and then you show it to someone else. They check with you so it can be confirmed Hmm. what the condition of the firearm is. And pulling a trigger, if you have taken the course seriously you know that you just don't have to pull the trigger for that firearm to discharge. Pulling the hammer back will do the very same thing depending upon the firearm.
6: Elliot, let me bring you in here because one of the points that Dutch raised was the idea of a lot of onus being on the actor yep. um, and in, and the assumptions that ought to be able to be relied upon if you have this safe space. But he is notably Alec Baldwin. Again, there is somebody else, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, also charged, and another producer, Who's pleaded guilty already to a different charge. But he's also being charged and factored in as a producer as well. And that's been a big sticking point for you.
10: Uh, No, it is because it's, you know, he's... And what they do in this probable cause statement where they lay out why they're charging him or what the basis for the charges is, number one, these are all the things that Alec Baldwin, the actor, did... uh, sort of failing in his duty as an actor. And then Alec Baldwin, as a producer who had some responsibility for what happened on the set, even if we're not looking at him as an actor, this is how this producer failed the set. So they're they're sort of putting forward two alternative theories for how he did it, or, you know, for how he went wrong. What this comes down to and what any manslaughter case is going to come down to is what's called reasonableness, and you know that, Laura, of course. It's... Was this person's actions, um, how does it relate to how a reasonable, quote-unquote, person would have acted in the same circumstances? As Dutch had said a little bit earlier, a lot of these things are open to interpretation, like what ought to be the right way to behave on a movie set, either as an actor or as a producer, so we'll see how it all plays out.
6: And of course, there's the he's saying he's more of a creative producer, not somebody with a nuts and bolts. Would that make a difference? Those well, nuances. Well, the
10: prosecutor seems to disagree with him. Mm-hmm. So, um, regardless of whether he's a creative producer, and, and that's a thing, you know, uh, the, you know, but he was also, I think they use the term, principal producer, maybe not executive producer, but he had a senior management role there. That's what they're hanging their hat on mm-hmm. here. It's just hard to say how this comes out, given how subjective it all is.
6: We are a long way away from this being fully resolved, everyone, but we are out of time tonight, and I thank you all for watching. Our coverage continues.